Um, I know um, we're going to have a reception after the talk, so um, I know everyone's excited to see each other, um, and we have a lot to talk about. So let me just start with our um, introductions. Um, this is our sixth uh, event in the Mellon Cultural Prehistory of Environmentalism Seminar, um, which is a seminar conducted, um, co-sponsored by um, uh, Rob Watson, Claire McKechnie, and, and myself, which is to encourage a dialogue, an interdisciplinary dialogue about um, environmental study in the humanities. Um, one brief announcement, our next lecture, unfortunately, is going to be canceled, so Timothy Morton is not able to come to campus. Um, but what we've decided to do is to hold a roundtable, bringing together various faculty in the humanities who are working on environmental um, studies together. And we think that'll probably be maybe Wednesday, June 3rd. So that's what's in the in the works. So instead of the Timothy Morton talk, we'll have a kind of dialogue about what's happening <coughs> on campus and, and encourage um, discussion between between uh, disciplines. Um, and if you've missed any of the lectures, the six that we've had so far, they're up on the website as podcasts. So if you're interested, if you missed any one, they're all on there. Um, Lisa Padovacini Gieberts is not entirely up, but most of it is up. So but just be patient when kind of working through the technology. Um, so I'm very happy to introduce uh, Jennifer Wenzel, who's a very recently tenured uh, professor in the Department of um, English Language and Literature at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Professor Wenzel's publications span the vast regions of Africa and South Asia. She's published articles on petromagic realism in Nigerian literature, um, on two articles on the historicity of the forests in Bengali writer Mahasudh Devi's short fiction, um, and an article called Anti-Imperialist Nostalgia, which is about literature from and of the Congo. Her new book, which is forthcoming and already on the website uh, of Chicago, um, University of Chicago Press, is called Bulletproof. Afterlives of Anti-Colonial Prophecy in South Africa and Beyond. Um, and today she will be taking on the planet and post-colonial studies. Please join me in welcoming Professor Jennifer Wenzel. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Um, at Michigan, it's customary for speakers to thank their audience for coming out despite the weather. <laughs> it's pretty, so nobody should have to go talk or it's awful and nobody should have to go to a talk. I, don't, I suspect that's not what people do here. So thank you for coming, uh, regardless of whatever else it is that keeps people from coming to talks. So let me dispel from the outset whatever mystery, opacity, or irrational exuberance is contained in my title and tell you what I'm interested in thinking about here. What happens when eco-criticism or environmental studies meets post-colonial theory? How does contemporary concern about planetary ecological crisis intersect with post-colonial studies' interest in political, economic, social, and epistemic, epistemic inequality on a global scale? If post-colonialism is thought to be a discourse in decline, what role do questions of nature play in its past and its endangered future? I've just begun to articulate these questions as I imagine a new book project, which at this early stage is titled Reading for the Planet world literatures and environmental crisis, which will consider whether the earth or planet in environmentalism is the same as the world in world literature or the globe in globalization discourse. I hope to move beyond the superficial ecological metaphorics of Pascal Casanova's discussion of the global circulation of what she calls natural resources in world literary space, or Franco Moretti's distinction between waves and trees as models for the dissemination of genres. 
Despite these metaphors, such recent reformulations of world literature have yet to engage seriously with questions of planetary ecological crisis or global environmental citizenship. At this point, I have many questions and few answers. What I'm presenting today is very much work in progress, speculative <coughs> and suggestive, suggestive not least of the limits of my knowledge and thinking, rather than abstracted from a longer, well-articulated argument. About the second part of my title for today, Caution, Progress Narratives Ahead, I should note that its warning about the promise of a better future around the bend has a rather improbable generic structure, that of a road sign. And I'm sorry that my PowerPoint turned out more lemon yellow than road sign yellow, but that, that was the idea. I keep thinking back to a day in Martinique, driving uh, on a scenic road that winds through the hilly, volcanic, rain-forested region at the center of the island. The stunningly beautiful road verging on tropical sublime rather than picturesque, was deserted, devoid of traffic. A good thing, too, because it was in very poor repair, with gaping craters and piles of rocks, boulders, really, that had fallen into the road. I was holding my breath, alternately because the landscape was so beautiful and the road so frightening. Thus, it came as a certain kind of relief to encounter a road sign that even I, sans French, could make out very clearly. Danger de mort, danger of death, caution, road closed ahead. The road sign confirmed my own sense that one should not try to go further to make progress on this perilous road. The road sign in Martinique warning of the danger of death is certainly more, uh, sorry, less equivocal than my own monetary title, caution, progress narratives ahead. By suggesting that one ought to be on guard against promises of a better future on the horizon, my title speaks to what I have found most disturbing, even at this early stage of considering the emergent intersections of environmental and post-colonial studies. The disturbing thing is this, that after 30 years or more of critiquing a received narrative in which Europe or the West spread the good news of Christianity <coughs> or civilization or modernity or markets or whatever to the rest of the world, post-colonial studies must now confront yet another progress narrative progress narrative of an environmentalism that promises that the West can save the planet once again by disseminating a new gospel, what we might call the gospel of green. It will be no surprise, given my use of the metaphor of the road sign to signpost my own argument here, that I believe that such narratives of the future demand that we proceed with caution. Before examining some examples of this new, or dare I say recycled, progress narrative, I want to offer you some account of my own trajectory through the fields of post-colonial studies and eco-criticism in order to reflect on why I found this epiphany particularly disturbing. Although in the fine tradition of Edward Said, Geiger Spivak, and many others, I have often disavowed or at least chafed against the rubric post-colonial, I have nonetheless been far more institutionally affiliated and formally engaged with the subfield of post-colonial studies than with that of eco-criticism. I wrote my dissertation in the mid to late 90s at the University of Texas at Austin on material and cultural contests over land in South Africa and India, using the fiction of South African novelist Jane Sia and Bengali writer-activist Mahashwada Devi as my primary literary texts. My consideration of these writers' engagements with cultural traditions of imagining relations to spaces like farms and forests, and with spectacular histories of racialized geography, was informed by figures like William Beinart or Colin Bundy, 
Vandana Shiva, Mabhavyat Gadyo, and Ramchandra Guha, not literary critics, but rather historians, more or less, of the particular socio-ecological effects of colonialism and post-colonial nation-building in local contexts within South Africa and India. I was doing something like eco-criticism, I suppose, but in isolation from the critical conversation that was then being institutionalized in the US, in the publication, for example, of Cheryl Blackfelty's Eco-Criticism Reader, or the formation of the Association of the Study for Literature and the Environment. Let me be clear. I did not not engage with the emergent discourse of eco-criticism out of some principled stand or even any conscious decision, but rather simply because my reading did not take me there. One reader's fortuitous offhanded comment that I might think less in terms of environmental degradation and more in terms of environmental justice led me to voices like that of Vandana Shiva. Even in 2004 or so, when I began writing about oil extraction, petromagic, and Nigerian literature, my primary guides for how to think about the question of oil were the geographer Michael Ross and the anthropologist Fernando Coronel, who can say provocative things about literature precisely because it's not their primary disciplinary concern. All of this is to say that in some ways I have been a kind of eco-critic for nearly as long as I've been a critic. In other ways, however, because I've mostly taken my cues for how to talk about various environmental questions outside the discipline of literary studies, I am very much a latecomer to eco-criticism as an institutionalized discourse. And now I find myself trying to figure out what everyone's been talking about while I was out of the room. So yes, the post-colonialist in me was shocked, shocked to find that ethnocentrism is going on here in this discourse of eco-criticism. Let's examine what might seem an unfair example, but one which I hope will get us started. In the introduction to his 2001 book, Writing for an Endangered World, which is a slide. Lawrence Buell writes, oh, um, well, the top half of the slide is cut off, um, but I'll just see. Huh. Okay, so we have a Mac to um, PC problem here <laughs> where my font is, um, is too big. So I'm just going to read the quote, and at some point you'll see the quote on the slide. Um, so Buell says, Judging by what it has taken to rouse sizable numbers of non-white male, non-highly educated people to a state of environmental concern, fears for survival of family itself are more powerful motivators than self-sacrificial caring for nature as an intrinsic good. I want to examine this statement in some detail, but first let me explain that Buell's book, Writing for an Endangered World, from which I've taken this quote, was an attempt to de-provincialize the questions that he had posed with regard to Thoreau and the American experience in his 1995 book, The Environmental Imagination, and to broaden these questions to the world beyond. He would later take this project one step further in his 2005 book, The Future of Environmental Criticism, in which he offers the term cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanization to describe what he recognizes as a necessary project of working against the ethnocentrism of second-wave eco-criticism. So while I sympathize with Buell's emerging recognition of the need to join questions of environmental justice on a global scale to questions of environmental imagination once assumed to be quintessentially American, I also feel compelled to point out just how ethnocentric and offensive his statement is precisely at the moment that he is trying to get beyond ethnocentrism 
to open up his notion of the environmental imagination. A crude and ungenerous ungener paraphrase about his statement of the intransigent lack of environmental concern of non-white male, non-highly educated people would go something like this. The benighted, poor, dark, and female just don't get that nature is a good thing, despite the best efforts of enlightened people like me. This claim about the Herculean efforts necessary to convince undereducated non-white males that nature is good for them, or good in itself, is simply outrageous in replicating the local and broader epistemic assumptions about the origins of environmental concern that he's ostensibly working against. Modes of thinking that conflate poverty with pollution in various ways. The poor generate pollution because they don't know any better, don't really mind it, or can't afford not to. Environmental racism both figures the poor as pollutants themselves and justifies the citing of toxic entities in the midst. Reading Buell or the even less subconscious writing that he's trying to recuperate, you might think for a moment the global south had invented the Hummer, the suburb, planned obsolescence, or disposable everything. To borrow Geithner's Spivak's description of the European civilizing mission, this version, this version of environmentalism is something like white men saving brown women from a brown or browning world. I should point out that I am describing both Buell and myself as symptoms. Symptoms entirely consistent with Ron Nixon's diagnosis of the urgent need to bring US-based environmentalism and post-colonial studies into conversation. Nixon's trenchant analysis in his 2005 essay, Environmentalism and Postcolonialism, implies something rather surprising, which is that many post-colonialists, like Buell, if with very different political consequences, have been too quick to imagine environmental concern as the purview of those bourgeois, white, and male. Conversely, Nixon argues, the US-centric institutional and epistemological locus of eco-criticism makes urgently clear, and I could get another slide, thank you. This is a quote from Nixon that we'll pick up eventually. Um, so Nixon says uh, that there's a clear need to refuse a vision of environmentalism as invented at the center and exported to or imposed on the periphery. Such center-periphery thinking constitutes both a source of post-colonialists' pervasive indifference to environmentalism and, conversely, a source of the debilitating strain of superpower parochialism that lingers among many American eco-critics and writers. Just as subaltern studies embarked upon a project of provincializing the West, so too we need to provincialize American environmentalism if we are to regenerate and diversify the field. Perhaps because he is less naive than I, Nixon does not remark upon the profound irony of the disseminationist model of American environmentalism that is to spread like waves and trees. If we can see its center-periphery model as in terms of spreading the gospel of green, as I suggested before, then this version of environmentalism replicates imperialist ideologies in which the West is the source of civilization, progress, and modernity, which it exports to the rest. Could I get a slide? In her recent book, Sense of Place or Sense of Planet, Ursula Heitze examines the pervasive emphasis on the local, that is, as she helpfully points out, uh, sorry, uh, unique to American environmentalism. What I want to suggest is that when US writers have begun to look beyond the local, as with Buell 
or Robert Kaplan's apocalyptic taxi rise in the coming anarchy, the West is all too often figured as both threatened by and the prospective model and savior for the unenlightened, nature-wasting masses of the global South. To the extent that these ethnocentric assumptions have sometimes undergirded the subfield of US-based eco-criticism, what I'm trying to suggest is that a particular progress narrative finds new life in environmental discourse after post-colonial studies has already dismantled the older disseminationist progress narratives that underwrote high imperialism and mid-20th century modernization theory. From a post-colonial perspective then, to begin to engage in a systematic way with the formal discourse of US-based eco-criticism seems to require going back to square one in terms of demystifying the notion of the West as the site from which all blessings flow. What I want to argue is that taking seriously the question of nature can not only help us to move beyond the mutual silence between environmentalism and post-colonialism, as Nixon suggests, but also help to deepen our understanding both of, of both of these discourses in relation to the history of capitalism and its critiques. I have in mind a triangular conversation about the nature of nature in which Marxian critiques of capitalism can fully inform both post-colonial theories critique of colonialism and post-coloniality, as well as eco-criticism's environmental concern. Contemporary post-colonialism and environmental discourse may each bear an uneasy, even a strange relationship to Marxism and vice versa, but I argue their prehistories allow us to see how the question of nature deeply implicates all three. The Venezuelan anthropologist Fernando Poranillo, for example, demonstrates how the question of nature has been marginalized in critiques of capitalism after Marx. He argues that if we consider the history of global capitalism, capitalism not only in terms of an international division of labor, but also in terms of an international division of nature, we can better understand the continuities and discontinuities between colonialism and contemporary neoliberal globalization. Understanding capitalism's fundamental and long-standing reliance upon nature and natural resources located outside of Europe can, in Coronel's words, here's the quote from the beginning, counter Eurocentric conceptions that identify modernity with Europe and relegate the periphery to a pre-modern primitivity. By bringing out a neglected structuring principle of capitalist development, this perspective helps us to see capitalism as a global process rather than a European phenomenon. Where Corneille rejects a progress narrative in which modernity travels to the periphery on the wings of a capitalism that originates solely in Europe and thus uses the question of nature to deprovincialize Marxism, Hans Fanon insists upon a similar dynamic that has important implications for understanding the prehistory of contemporary post-colonial studies. In The Wretched of the Earth, first published in 1961, Fanon wrote, and you have to be patient for a minute, he wrote, this European opulence is literally scandalous, for it has been founded upon slavery. It has been nourished with the blood of slaves, and it comes directly from the soil and the subsoil of, the, of that underdeveloped world. The wealth of the imperial countries is our wealth too. Europe has stuffed herself inordinately with the gold and raw materials of the colonial countries, Latin America, China, and Africa. From all these continents, under whose eyes Europe today raises up her tower of opulence, there has flowed out for centuries toward that same Europe, diamonds and oil, silk and cotton, wood and exotic products. Europe is literally the creation of the third world. Here, 
unknown reverses the familiar traffic lines of the disseminationist progress narrative. All good things flow towards Europe. It is the third world that has made the development, wealth, and modernity of Europe possible. He makes visible the crucial difference between being underdeveloped and being merely undeveloped. Underdevelopment is a true <coughs> process that produces both modernity and inequality, as opposed to the expectant waiting in a primitive state of nature implied by the notion of being undeveloped. By framing colonialism as an impeded dialectical process in which the development of the wealth of Europe is predicated upon the underdevelopment of the third world, Fanon helps to demonstrate how the question of nature, rather than being external or inimical to post-colonial critique, is actually foundational to it. If posing the question of nature can lead to a more adequate understanding of capitalism and colonialism from a planetary perspective, then in turn questions of structural inequality inherent to capitalism and colonialism can lead to a more adequate understanding of what nature means materially and epistemologically. I'm thinking here of a striking moment in the eco-criticism reader where Neil Everenden raises the question of what it means to think environmentally. Everenden asserts, one who looks on the world as simply a set of resources to be utilized is not thinking of it as an environment at all. The whole world is simply fodder and feces. I love that phrase, fodder and feces to the consumer, in sharp contrast to the man who is in an environment in which he belongs and is of necessity apart. At first glance, this assertion may seem unobjectionable, except perhaps in gender terms, relying as it does on a seeming opposition between the unenlightened consumer whose only interest in nature is its standing reserve of things he can use and throw away, as opposed to environmental man who recognizes himself in a constitutive and deeply historical interrelationship with nature. Yet I want to suggest that Everton's easy dismissal of mere resources, mere fodder and feces, is implicitly dependent upon his privileged position within a structure of global inequality in which the question of resources and access to them, or vulnerability to the aftermath of their extraction, the question of food security, the question of disposal of feces and other waste has been asked and answered for him in such a way that his own daily survival is not so much on the line. As one of my students has written, I, person of the first world, typically don't see trash. I put trash in opaque black plastic bags or untransparent blue bins for recycling, and I usually never see it again. It goes to the dump, the landfill, etc. But the etc. is key because it reveals the etc. logic of displacement by which waste management operates. Trash only becomes trash when I find it in a place that is not here. Turning the idea of fodder and feces on its head this way takes us back to Buell and his concern about the unconcern of the non-white male. What counts as environmental concern? What counts as environment? What counts as nature? These questions should suggest that the task of post-colonial eco-criticism does not consist merely in widening the lens to include previously excluded or overlooked geographical regions, historical experiences, cultural perspectives, questions of race, class, and gender, those of, say, the non-white male. Rather, the excavation of the politics of knowledge, that 
following the seminal work of Edward Said has been one of post-colonial studies' most important interventions might lead post-colonial ecocritics to question the very notion of what constitutes nature, environment, or ecological crisis. Indeed, David Maisel has borrowed Said's critique of Orientalism in order to make a simple yet urgently necessary statement. What comes to count as the environment is that which matters to the culturally dominant. Recognizing the constructiveness of concepts of environment or nature would help to make explicit the, the significance of the ecocentric assumptions and dual statements about non-white males being unmoved by the idea of, in his words, self-sacrificial caring for nature as an intrinsic good. If what counts as nature is constituted by relations of power, then we might come to recognize some of the claims of ecocentrism as being inflected by a certain ethnocentrism. Fondana Shiva asks us to move beyond the ecocentric and propocentric debate and to recognize the indivisibility of struggles for sustainability and peace, and struggles against what she calls ecological poverty for the poor, oh, sorry, ecological poverty for the planet and economic poverty for the poor. If folding together these questions of nature, capitalism, and colonialism generates a different understanding of just what nature or an environment is, then it can also lead us to recognize dangers of an environmental ethnocentrism aligned to its own relationship to these histories of violence. The gospel of green bears an ambivalent relationship to earlier gospels disseminated from the West. <coughs> to the varying extent the disseminationist environmentalism's focus on problems of overconsumption, industrial pollution, or other aspects of capitalism's externalization of nature, the gospel of environmentalist green may contradict, if not explicitly challenge, earlier gospels of capitalist, capitalist green, if we can take green for a moment as the color of money rather than nature. We need only look back to the agricultural technology transfers of the mid-20th century for a cautionary example of how the West promised a better life for all through mastery of nature, including pesticides, fertilizer, irrigation, corporate-controlled seeds, and monoculture. This process, of course, went by the name of the Green Revolution. It is the under-examined tensions among these Gospels of Green that have allowed China and India, powerhouses of the developing world, to be invoked as scapegoats in U.S. political discourse on the difficulty of negotiating international climate change treaties. One of the seemingly non-environmental questions that has most troubled me as a post-colonialist is the relevance of mid-20th century national liberation struggles to the present moment. The radical praxis of figures like Franz Fanon, Romeo Cabral, and its seeming failure in post-coloniality. If history has largely proven right, Fanon's prophecies of all the ways that national liberation could be derailed by an international neo-imperialism in collusion with national elites. And if the kind of struggle that Fanon imagined is unimaginable in today's international situation of neoliberal globalization, does Fanon remain relevant at all to the present? One answer to this question is this, that Fanon's condemnation of centuries of underdevelopment from which I quoted above can be easily extended into the present and near future in order to make clear that Africa will have paid at least four times the development of Europe in the first world. Once in human capital through the slave trade, 
again in natural capital and the extraction of resources during high imperialism, again in financial capital and, social, and the social costs of structural adjustment through debt servicing in the era of modernization and neoliberalism, and finally in the disproportionate effects in Africa of global climate change that is largely caused by carbon consumption elsewhere. <coughs> Indeed, a group of scientists concluded in 2008 that rich nations may have imposed climate damages on the poor group of nations greater than the latter's current foreign debt. So this slide goes along with this article, and the red represents the high-income nations. Um, and the red foot is the scale of ecological damage on the low and middle uh, income nations. And then you can see the ecological footprint of ecological damage of the low income nations on the other two. So you can see the size of the footprint that each of these spaces will bear uh, from the other's uh, consumption. This subversive notion of ecological debt the debt that the developed world owes to poor nations for having externalized the ecological costs of its own development restores to view the long history of economic and ecological exploitation all too easily obscured by the market-driven presentism of carbon credits. Here again, the notion of prehistory raises questions about time nearly as complex as those about carbon. If Fanon can see in the splendor of mid-20th century Europe the shadows of centuries of underdevelopment outside of Europe, can we too develop a spatial and temporal capacity to recognize what it means to live after and yet fully within the causes of ecological crisis whose full effects are yet to come in the future and which will hurt most those who have benefited the least? What does it mean to inhabit the meantime for the unless? of an injustice against people and planet that reinforces and replicates older histories of domination. A provisional answer about the contemporary relevance of liberation theory, read for a green lens, comes in no small part from just having finished teaching a course on postcolonial theory, in which the two-week unit on postcolonial ecologies was without question the material that most provoked the students to examine deeply the relationship between the sometimes abstruse theory and the immediacy mediations within their own lives. Many of my students observed that they didn't really get Fanon, what he was talking about. <coughs> they couldn't really grasp how anyone could argue for the necessity of revolutionary violence until they started working through the photographs and essays in the book, The Curse of the Black Gold, 50 Years of Oil in the Niger Delta, in which Ed Kashi's photographs are juxtaposed with essays by geographer Michael Watts, as well as numerous essays, poems, and interviews by writers, activists, and militants in the Niger Delta. My students' argument about trash, which I cited earlier, was provoked by this photograph from the book. We can see Kashi and Watts as something like contemporary Jean-Paul Sartre's or Gio Corvos of Battle of Algiers, Spain, using their cultural capital to make sure that the story of resistance to corporate and state country violence in the Niger Delta can be told, and stylishly at that to those who unwittingly benefit from such violence. Bob Nixon has argued that one of the challenges that Ken Sarawiwa faced in his struggle against Shell Oil in the Nigerian state was prejudicial failures of geographical imagining. In American intellectual and media terms, a region like Ogoni is almost completely 
unimaginable. I would suggest then that the curse of the black gold enabled my students to begin to imagine the Niger Delta and to trace the otherwise invisible traffic lines of the relationship to it with powerful results. They came to understand very quickly the idea that the nation state is not withering away under globalization, but rather being made to serve rather different purposes, not least to facilitate the work of resource extraction in places like the Niger Delta. Having assigned this book just after midterm to accommodate a campus visit by Watson Kashi, I found myself challenged in numerous ways by the depth and passion of my students' engagement. Challenged first to respond adequately their visceral responses of despair and anger at recognizing their own implication in a global system in which, in Jamaica Kincaid's words, every good thing that stands before us comes at great cost to someone else. In The Curse of the Black Gold, Ima Bossi writes, slide, please. the lure of oil is in its cheapness. Oil is a cheap source of energy. It is cheap part, partly because oil's costs of extraction are not reflected in the price of the pump. Poor people continue to subsidize the cost of crude oil through the losses, and you're going to have to listen to me instead of reading, through the losses. They suffer in environmental services, quality of life, and extreme environmental degradation. My students saw how their own lives were subsidized by the suffering of others whom they will never meet even as they grappled closer to home with the death of Detroit, which is now paying its own steep price for the phantasmagoric cheapness of oil. And this is something that they are very directly affected by. The broader challenge I faced after teaching this book was how to channel and maintain this energy throughout the rest of the semester. Somehow Homi Paba's essay on mimicry just didn't elicit the same kind of response. My students have convinced me that whatever future post-colonial studies can have, the contemporary relevance of its own liberatory tradition will depend in no small part on its capacity to raise such questions of nature in tandem with the classic questions of equality and justice, questions of self-determination in the sense of both political autonomy and control of human and natural resources. Here I may seem to be on the verge of offering my own progress narrative for post-colonial studies, so let me make two very important caveats themselves about the lore of progress narratives. The first has to do with the question of revolutionary violence in contemporary situations of ecocide like the Niger Delta. While many of my students found themselves radicalized by what they were learning about oil in Nigeria, and thus could begin to imagine answering Fanon's revolutionary call nearly 60 years after his death, I found myself horrified to recognize 14 years after Kensora Wewa's death, that one could plausibly begin to explain the contemporary situation of the Niger Delta as a consequence of Sarawiwa's campaign for more political autonomy, revenue sharing, and community development for those who live in the midst of petroleum extraction, as well as his campaign against the monopoly of violence wielded by state and oil, wielded by the state and oil companies against local residents. Reading The Curse of the Black Gold, one learns of legal and political developments in Nigeria over the past decade. Sarwiwa was executed in 1995. Um, so one learns of developments that might be seen as representing the achievement of some of Sarwiwa's objectives. In, uh, this is the whole quote. In the 1990 Ogoni Bill of Rights, 
So our legal called for political control of Ogoni affairs by Ogoni people, the right to the control and use of a fair proportion of Ogoni economic resources for Ogoni development, adequate and direct representation as a right for Ogoni people in all Nigerian national institutions, and the right to protect the Ogoni environment and ecology from further degradation. And the first two of these have kind of been addressed in, in, in some nominal way in Nigeria. Yet the subsequent proliferation of local political entities based largely on ethnicity, the funneling of some increased percentage of oil revenues to them, and the oil company's embrace of a rhetoric of community development has resulted uh, not, as Sarawiwa would have hoped, in a livable Niger Delta, a just Nigeria, and poet Ogogov before those words, but rather in the localization and minority ethnicization of previously nationalized corruption among the ethnic majority. And an explosion, and indeed a perverse democratization of violence. In other words, instead of violence and money being kept at the center, they've been disseminated locally uh, into the Niger Delta. Violence in the Niger Delta is no longer top-down, the monopoly of the state and oil multinationals, but rather pervasive, capillary, inter-ethnic and intra-ethnic, seemingly all against all. This is not the revolutionary, disciplined violence channeled methodically against colonialism that Fanon theorized in Wretched of the Earth as the only adequately dialectical response to colonial violence, I unexpectedly found myself compelled to convince students. This is not what Fanon was talking about. I tried to convince them uh, once they were ready to get with his program, suddenly. Um, indeed, as one of the militants with the, militant, with the movement for the emancipation of the Niger Delta quoted in the Curse of the Black Gold notes, we are not communists or revolutionaries. We are just extremely bitter men. My reading of the contemporary nightmare of the Niger Delta as the success, in some ways, of Sarawiwa's struggle is admittedly perverse. But it does serve as a deeply troubling example of the unintended consequences of movements, whether violent or nonviolent, for environmental justice. Taken on their own, in isolation from their consequences, some of the legal and fiscal developments in Nigeria since Sarawiwa may sound like progress. But as represented in the Curse of the Black Gold, at least, they look more like apocalypse. And just to give some explanation of this photograph, which is from this book, um, uh, oil extraction has uh, decimated fishing in the riverine space of the Niger Delta. So this is taken at a, a slaughterhouse, I think is, is too much of a term, but it's, so goat meat has replaced fish as the source of protein in the diet. My second caveat has to do with imagining alternatives to the dissemination of progress narrative that envisions the West as the source of an environmental concern that would turn the tide of ecological crisis. If we must leave such narratives behind, what kind of alternative model of solidarity among humans in relationship with the non-human can offer a more just and sustainable future? The most obvious rubric is the planet, and I have noticed in both contemporary in both comparative literary studies, as well as the nascent discourse of post-colonial ecocriticism, a shared anti-Eurocentric or anti-US-centric impulse, and an attempt to engage in new forms of world imagining. Among ecocritics, for example, we see Buell looking for 
environmental, sorry, an emergent global environmental culture, Haiza articulating an eco-cosmopolitan alternative to American localism, Dean Curtin calling for the emergence of a global environmental citizenship that seems not entirely incompatible with Bandana Shiva's idea of Earth democracy, to which I will return in a moment. The embrace of the planet as a scale for ethics, imagining, and action also seems evident outside the scholarly realm in developments such as Pope Benedict's March 2008 statement on sin. By emphasizing questions of harm and responsibility in social and globalized terms, Benedict invited Catholics to consider the responsibility for pollution and ecological harm on a planetary scale as a source of sin, or a form of sin. At the same time that the Pope's statement on pollution as global sin was getting media airtime, scientists revived the idea that the Earth may have entered a new geological epoch, dubbed the Anthropocene, reflecting the massive effects of human activity on the Earth that far transcend climate fluctuations in earlier epochs. <coughs> what we must ask before getting too, down, too far down this road toward planetarity, does it mean to think like a planet? or to read for the planet, both with a sense of advocacy, reading for the sake of the earth, but also reading for images of the world as a conceptual, social, or ecological whole. On the one hand, to think in planetary terms seems to be preferable to a blinkered localism or a disseminationist, disseminationist model of progress that divides the world between West and rest. Rachel Carson concluded in 1962 that it is not possible to add pesticides to water anywhere without threatening the purity of water everywhere. And it is hard not to hear in this statement an anticipatory echo of Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement a year later in his letter from Birmingham jail that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Anti-colonial thinkers from Nehru to Lumumba make similar claims about the fragility of any one nation's independence in a world where imperialism exists elsewhere. What these statements seem to demand is an unwavering attention to the local instance, pesticide in this stream, legalized racism in this town, colonialism in this country, with the capacity to imagine, recognize, articulate, and actualize the relationship between the local instance and a planetary, dare I say, universal scale. What role can the literary play in such an ethical movement between these scales? How can texts bring to light or challenge a moral economy of distance that otherwise obscures relationships between sites and subjects thousands of miles apart? How can this kind of literary experience offer an alternative to the webs of responsibility, risk, and harm? That, for example, join Michigan, Vietnam, and India through the corporate structures of Dow Chemical. The slow violence of dioxin pollution in Michigan, the planned military ecological assault of napalm in Vietnam, and the catastrophic event of Union Carbide in Bhopal. And I think that this last photograph is really interesting. It's a graffiti from Bhopal Kiyavas, voice of uh, Bhopal. Um, listing the demands of the organization more than 20 years later. And if you look at the very last one, compensation from Dow, the demand reflects the contemporary situation of corporate responsibility, whereby the responsibilities of Union Carbide are now those of Dow. I articulate this series of questions without answers because they chart my own road forward. I offer them to you for discussion. I do want to spend some time with a related question, however, which is this. 
is thinking of the planet the same thing as thinking from below. Thinking from below, of course, is the intervention of a post-colonial or subaltern studies committed to undoing the epistemic violence that accompanies other, more spectacular forms of domination. Reading the recent work of Vandana Shiva, one might begin to imagine an Earth democracy that fully realizes, as if for the first time, the promise of equality and right to survival for all beings, which would be impossible without thinking from below. Shiva writes, the Earth Democracy Movement is a commitment to go beyond the triple crises of economic injustice and equality, ecological non-sustainability, and the decay of democracy and the rise of terrorism. How can we, as members of the Earth community, reinvent security to ensure the survival of all species and the survival and future of diverse cultures? What is subtle but striking in Shiva's work is her unabashed use of the first-person plural. After having spent many weeks trying to get my students in post-colonial theory to be self-aware of just who and what they meant by the we and whom they were excluding, here Vandana Shiva was using the we in its second most universal sense. We as a species. We humans. A prehistory of the we in post-colonial ecologies would demand, first of all, a confrontation with the false universalism of the we in the European Enlightenment, the we that was imagined to encompass all humanity, but whose actual constituents were a lucky few on good days in Europe. The post-colonial prehistory of the we would demand, secondly, an accounting for the stratifications created on a global scale by this history, stratifications that make it impossible to speak in terms of the universal we. And it would also demand a recognition that without a reconstitution, or rather a constitution for the first time, of the first we, we, we the people, we the humans, humbly speaking as well for the non-human, and a recognition that without a reckoning with the history that obviates the universal we, the planet will no longer be a home to us in whatever sense of we. For the moment, however, I think it's important to keep in mind the difference between thinking like a planet, which may well be something like thinking from below, both, in any case, are figurative modes of imagining, thinking like, as opposed to the actual thinking about the planet that is happening all around us. The dissemination's progress narrative is, after all, a way of thinking about the planet, too. And the newly emergent spatial ethics of world imagining that I have mentioned also risk replicating the inequalities and exclusions of earlier universalist projects founded upon the ideal of a unitary globe from the Roman Empire to post-colonial neoliberal globalization. Thinkers ranging from Dennis Cosgrove to Bruce Robbins have reminded us that imagining the planet far from being a vision from below has long been undertaken from above, the Apollonian view as in the dramatic photographs from space in the 1960s and 70s that I have been using here. And I think it's interesting that this, I think, is the most iconic of these photographs. And you have to, at least I did, I had to look really hard to recognize that it's Africa that's in the middle of this image. I think it's easy to mistake it somehow for the US. That's what I'm always tempted to do. Lawrence Buell has argued that eco-criticism is different from the largely identity-based movements that have expanded the literary canon and transformed the assumptions <coughs> and methods of literary interpretation to include questions of race, gender, and class. The difference is that, in his words, 
No human can speak as the environment, as nature, as non-human animal. To extend Gill's idea, it is true that no human can speak as the planet, but it is also true that many humans have spoken and acted for it. And Gill risks, I believe, losing track of the ways in which human identities and differentiating histories do profoundly shape what we see and say with regard to nature. World images, images of planetarity, are imagined from particular positions of power and interest. The causes and effects of global climate change are unevenly distributed and locally differentiated. Like civilization or modernity, environmental concern is not an invention of the West to be bestowed, to be bestowed upon the world, but rather a multi-form product of interrelated histories. Thinking beyond the parochialism of American wilderness may indeed be a kind of progress for US-based environmentalists, but thinking for the planet can sound an awful lot like the extended progress narrative that begins with the discovery, quote unquote, of a new world and ranges through the civilizing mission and the sun never setting and manifest destiny and the promise of the market and the Washington consensus whose ruins, as I speak, lie all around us nearly possible to deny. So let me end where I began, thinking about that beautiful but deadly and deserted road in Martinique. What I did not say about the road sign when I began this talk is that I saw it only in the rearview mirror, only after having traveled a road that was supposed to be closed. Danger of death. Somehow the sign I saw only at the end of the road was missing its companion sign at the beginning where I unwittingly set out on a road supposed to be closed. So I'm lucky to be here today. Slide. There is something in the structure. This is not the sign, but I don't have the sign. So this is interesting in its own right. There is something in this structure of feeling that resembles the response of a post-colonialist to recognizing progress narratives in environmental discourse. Hey, I thought we had traveled this road already and closed it down for good, not just for repairs. But I also think that there's something deeper here than the ordinary roadblocks that can obstruct interdisciplinary thinking. The belatedness of the warning about what is coming around the bend, what the future seems to hold but doesn't realize in the end, a warning that one sees too late, if at all, in the rearview mirror, is suggestive of a more fundamental palimpsestic belatedness of late modernity. The condition where the end of the road, progress, has always already been displaced or abandoned by the sign of its own abandonment, even if it's all too easy to miss the sign and head out for progress anyway. The condition of being always already too late to get it right, always already too late to love nature. I'll say that for Timothy Warren if he's not going to be here, but it's very much connected with his ideas, I think. This temporal predicament both troubles me as a citizen and fascinates me as a student of narrative's endless capacity to trouble cause and effect and to cause trouble. To recognize only in retrospect such warnings about the future's bright future is reminiscent of Walter Benjamin's famous image of the angel of history. Let me read from Benjamin's description of the angel of history. Yeah, he begins in the sky. Uh, his face is turned toward the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed.
But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned. While the pile of debris before him goes skyward, the storm is what we call progress. Benjamin here asks us to take a different view of narratives of history as progress, to imagine one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage, a pile of debris, debris growing ever skyward. Benjamin's image of this wasted landscape has largely been read metaphorically as an account of the history of barbarism, oppression, violence, and injustice that has gone by the name of civilization. But I want to suggest that we read it literally as devastated landscape, the earth buried under the wreckage and debris of progress ravaged by the storm of history. In his desire to make this damage whole, a desire that is thwarted by the force of the wind in his wings that propels him forward into the future to which his back is turned, in his thwarted desire, nonetheless, Benjamin's angel of history becomes an angel of trash. An angel who might resemble Disney's Wally, left to tend the wreckage and debris until the planet Earth can once again be a home. Yet how to get from here to there. It's important to keep in mind that the fact that Benjamin saw narratives of historical decline as the mere obverse of progress narratives, rather than more adequate forms of engagement with history. Benjamin's suspicion of both progress and decline as ready-made narrative forms of historical understanding is, I would argue, salutary <coughs> as literary critics, others in the humanities, and citizens at large ponder the relationship between scientific observations and predictions of planetary ecological crisis on the one hand, and political discourse about what to do about it on the other. My own road sign, caution, progress narratives ahead, is thus intended as a kind of retrospective glance at future projection. What is the appeal of environmental progress narratives? What must they leave out? How do they ignore the ways in which what they intervene in was created by an earlier generation of progress narratives? This attempt to understand what is at stake in future projections that so recycle the past seems very much in the spirit of your ongoing, ongoing inquiry into the cultural prehistory of environmentalism as an attempt to confront the fundamental challenge of our century that is at once so new and so long in the making to suggest the need for narratives other than green gospel, green apocalypse, or a rather different kind of green revolution to be launched by ecological refugees, our own wretched of you. Thank you. Okay, we have about 20 minutes for discussion, so um, and then we'll continue our discussion at the reception. So do people have questions? As one who has spent a lifetime in environmental work, I congratulate you on your enthusiasm mm -hmm. for the topic. Thank you. I would uh, urge you to uh, uh, think a little bit more uh, historically uh, with respect to uh, the desertification of the near Middle East and North Africa, uh, looking at what happened. There are too many goats, too many people. 
too many goats and too many people. Um, so, I mean, can you say a little more about that in terms of how we can think about what the problem is or what kind of narrative you're constructing? Well, problem is you, uh, people have to sustain themselves in some fashion. Mm -hmm. The kind of government, I don't know what kind of governments uh, existed in pre-Roman times in North Africa, for example, although we know quite a bit about what existed in uh, the Near East and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, these people uh, had to survive. In surviving, of course, they ruined the land. And it's, it's remarkable now how this is being reversed to some degree, particularly uh, Israel. Uh, but uh, uh, is this the normal way that things happen? Yeah, I'm not going to try to figure out if it's the normal way that things happen, but I think what's really helpful to me in, in your comment is um, the importance of saying, on the one hand, and, and I've, I've, I've stressed the point, uh, perhaps more than I needed to, that um, the West is not the source of environmental wisdom, but I think the, the danger that I didn't address at all, but is, is obvious, is, is going too far the other way, right? And uh, romanticizing the capacity of um, indigenous peoples, native peoples, people outside the West to be custodians of nature, and certainly, you know, I could, you know, I, I could spend another, you know, half an hour talking about that problem. So I think it's helpful to have had that thrown in there. That um, by no means am I suggesting the the reverse, right? You know, just as with Benjamin, uh, a narrative of decline is not necessarily uh, superior to a narrative of progress. A narrative of uh, idealizing the third world is not going to help us any more than a narrative of idealizing the first world. So thank you very much for that. Um, in the case of Nigeria, <clears throat> there seems to be an obvious clash of ideals between the locals and the, the desires of the oil companies. And I'm wondering if the, the footprint chart and why, where did this idea of nature as like a monetary value Where did it emerge? You know, why does it seem like people can pay off the fact that they're destroying the ground, destroying the plants? Why is it paid off with a capitalist system that might not parallel out there? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the, the answer that, that is easiest to go to, is that, that, that it's a, a fundamentally capitalist idea of, of recognizing um, use values, uh, recognizing only use values not any other kind of benefit uh, for its own sake for other kinds of human needs. Um, so, um, so, so I think that that's the, the easy answer, and, and maybe, I'm not sure I have a, a better answer than that, um, but I, I think that you put your finger on something important in terms of the question of where to go from in terms of the question of whether continuing, whether um, in reversing the externalization of nature and capitalism, where all that matters is questions of profit, and we can put off questions of nature and questions of harm to the environment and, 
you know, we can go other places for resources once they're, they're worn out. If, if we're going to stop doing that, right, if, if we've reached a limit, for example, with climate change where that externalization cannot happen so much anymore, I think that's the, you put your finger on the debate. Do we get out of it by increasing the monetary value of those environmental services or by working against that whole idea of nature only having uh, any kind of work through its monetary value? Does that make sense? I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The follow up on Jen's question. Can you talk a bit about the kind of role of literature or photography in this? Because it seems like in the kind of narrative you're sketching out here, you're talking about the limitations, right? In terms of reducing it to use value. Um, you know, all the kind of various narratives of, of the environment, but are there ways that certain types of aesthetic forms can recuperate another narrative that may be more of a catalyst than not be able to? Yeah, and as someone who works mostly with narrative, um, I was completely unprepared for the effect of the photographs on my students, but both completely unprepared in terms of the shot right? um, at the depth of my students' response, but also in terms of having the methodological language to talk critically about the image in a way that would allow students to step back from the, their visceral response to think about the role of affect. And so it was at this moment, and I, and I don't have a, a great answer for this. And, and, and I think for me, um, uh, I can think more abstractly about narrative and how it works than I can about the image. Um, and to be honest, there is a part of me that's concerned and suspicious mm -hmm. about offering the image or narrative as literary narrative as um, as a, a kind of representation or text that is going to allow students to break the blockage of, of, of this and to begin to think about questions of nature and, and money and value. Um, and for me, the analogy is kind of like um, kind of like uh, trauma studies in the 80s and 90s where there was this argument that reading a text of trauma somehow created in the reader an experience that was like trauma so that the reader could understand what it was like to, uh, to experience a historical trauma. And that makes me really nervous. So what makes me nervous about photographs and narrative is um, the disconnect, possible disconnect, between pleasure, these images are Beautiful. And what comes next? So does pleasure, pleasure clearly translates to anger, but what does anger translate to? And it is, a, is it a kind of mere consumption of the image, or does it actually produce any kind of action? So that's, that's what I would say. Sorry. I had just actually just kind of a factual question. So you mentioned uh, briefly about in Nigeria how uh, kind of the the calls for a kind of greater community ended up just sort of in this democratization of violence or the kind of widespread uh, kind of ethnically based uh, forms of violence. I was just wondering, or are these violent movements are the are are the 
is the purpose to gain like a larger share of oil land, or is it against oil altogether? I mean, what what are is it is it a various being of sorts of revolutionary activities or? I think it's all of that. Not necessarily an attempt to uh, acquire more land, but an attempt to acquire more of the rents, right? To acquire more of the money that is produced um, through oil. And I think it's a, a really sticky question in terms of um, because there are so many of these militant groups and what they're all after. and. My concern, part of my concern is that some of it seems to be merely violence for the sake of violence, right, rather than for some other um, goal. But yes, there are, the um, violence is, the sabotage is directed against the oil installations themselves, um, but also um, uh, also in an attempt, not merely to eliminate oil extraction. I don't know that that's what anybody is really after at this point, but rather to benefit more and to um, mitigate the environmental effects and to force uh, companies like Shell to use the kind of practices in the Niger Delta that they use in Texas or Canada or California, I don't know. Um, um, I mean, that's a huge problem in terms of what Shell is able to do. I saw some of it in the photographs in Nigeria. There's no way they can do that. It's like an Anwar. I appreciate that you articulated um, environmentalism as a resilience because sometimes it really bothers me that how um, the American Intellectuals, you know, mentioned about environment, environmentalism, while constant war, violence is going on through their tax money. <coughs> For me, the people, intellectuals, have a tendency not to bother with the people so that they can invade their space. Then, in a way, the, the more, you know, it's very difficult to me, you know, to hear the American, you, you use the word threat, but for me, I want to use the U.S. <laughs> for me, the West, the lines really funny. So anyway. The line between the U.S. and the West? No, the West and the North. Oh. Right, because there's a lot of translation that is generated at this point, and it's very difficult. <coughs> so, so for me, you know, rather than, I want to hear the U.S. So I just, you know, how would you um, digest the violence out there <coughs> by your tax money? And uh, articulate the environment for you know, for me, it sounds like Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I would want to say is that, is that um, in making the strong argument that I'm making, by no means uh, am I trying to make a blanket statement about all environmental activity rather to think about uh, an intellectual tendency that has a long history. So that joins you know, where my tax dollars, not yours, right, but where my tax dollars are going today, this very moment, to these earlier 
histories in which the West would be the term rather than the U.S. Um, I'm trying to think, and it's just escaping me, of a kind of lovely anecdote of, uh, of American imperialism that combines an environmental component. Maybe someone can, can rescue me. But I think it's a, a, a point worth thinking about in terms of fighting battles over there so we don't have to fight them over here, right? Sort of prize some logic that we years ago. Um, I wish I had a lovely example of, of the way that um, questions of the environment play right into that. I mean, I'm thinking of Specifically, um, one of the oh, geez, one of the <laughs> one, uh, one of the um, one of the issues has been that the people who are actually employed on these installations do not come from the Niger Delta. They're brought in elsewhere, from Nigeria or from other countries. And what uh, what constituted livelihoods for people in terms of raising crops or catching fish or whatever has been completely eliminated. So. The idea that people need work, um, I mean, there's a line in this, this book, you, you have a book, uh, The Curse of the Black Gold. Yeah, there's a, a wonderful line that actually comes from a Palestinian poet about the problem of, um, of starting from secondly, right? the idea of where do we begin telling narratives of violence. And all too often we start with secondly, as opposed to the first thing that happened. Right? So that the idea that people need work it's kind of starting from secondly, and the first thing would be, well, what what was the situation before this, um, before the oil uh, started being extracted from the space? Yeah. I think it's one last question. Well, I mean, we often talk about cooperation in government, and their responsibility for disaster, mm -hmm. psychological disaster. <clears throat> How much do you feel intellectuals are responsible mm -hmm. 
for these sorts of issues that we're dealing with these days? And pedagogically, how do you teach, how do you balance analysis and social justice in your own Yeah, I haven't thought about intellectuals as, as a piece of the puzzle. Um, I mean, I have thought about it more in terms of the students as intellectual slash citizen slash consumer. And um, I think that, that helping students to think about the ways in it's very easy to, for them to think of themselves as consumers, even though they might not be thinking about the full planetary effects of that consumption. And it becomes very difficult, I think, for them to think about themselves as citizens. So in trying to think about your question about intellectuals, I think that that same kind of uh, uh, tension applies in terms of uh, intellectuals themselves as commodities. about that, and, and that is the kind of um, unspoken, one of the unspoken subtexts of my talk is my sense of uh, myself as a U.S. citizen, a post-colonialist working in the American Academy, and um, the, the sense that the locus of post-colonial studies is the American Academy. Right? Um, here I am as post-colonialist talking about the rest of the world from this specific Location. And so I talk about a kind of lack of, of connection between post-colonial studies on the one hand, which is largely a US-based discourse, and environment, American environmentalism on the other hand. But the kind of third piece that I didn't talk about was the new American studies and the ways in which American studies is becoming transnational. And, and I think that that's important to think about too in terms of the way that that American studies intersects with American uh, environmentalism because um, I think the new American studies is doing some of the things that post-colonial studies has been doing for several decades. Having uh, benefited from some, but perhaps not all, of the work of post-colonial studies. Right? So that's a place where I think we can see intellectuals caught between these discourses, which are taking rather different views of what the, their field is between the U.S. instance and the planetary victim. Answer your question. And Amanda Waldo, who is now currently setting up a reception out on the balcony. So, um, again, thank you, Professor Jennifer Wenzel. And please stay around and ask your questions.